0: Welcome to How did you think of that with Temple Brandon?
1: I met you briefly in 2011 when you won the Double Helix award from Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. Oh yes. Yeah. So we crossed paths briefly in the past.
2: Okay, yeah. Turning Science into Sense. On this episode with guest Dave Miklos, Executive Director of the Dolan DNA Learning Center at Cold Spring Harbor in New York. This learning center is impacting classrooms and homes across the globe with public science education for the genome age. Miklos is at the helm of devising projects for young people, teachers, and parents to conduct modern DNA experiments applicable to the real world.
1: I'm here at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in New York on Long Island, uh, where I've worked for about 35 years trying to help students and teachers do a better job of understanding modern biology. So that's what I'm up to.
0: I Means they understand stuff like CRISPR and things like that?
1: Yeah. Well, even before CRISPR, there was a lot of stuff that needed understanding just uh, how you can manipulate DNA in regular ways, uh, how you can predict how DNA will behave and what it will do when you work with it. I, I originally thought I wanted to be a science writer and write in a science magazine or for newspapers. So I got a graduate degree. In journalism after I studied biology initially. Uh, But there weren't any jobs when I got out of graduate school. So I came to New York um, to do opinion research, of all things. And uh, I happened to be seen by a headhunter who introduced me to my former boss, James Watson, who for some reason... (laughs) figured I could do a job here. So I came here to Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory originally to help James Watson raise money and to help the world to know more about this institution. And then in so doing that, I got interested in helping young people understand modern biology. So I went back to my roots as an educator.
0: One thing that concerns me is there's a lot of the young people today that are totally removed from Practical things, doing things outside. Uh, that's why I did a book called The Outdoor Scientist, Get Kids Out Observing Things. And that really worries me. They're going to make policy about stuff in the future. And we've got to find practical ways to make things work. And I, uh, you see, I'm, as a visual thinker, I'm always looking at, well, how do you actually... It's not, I'm not into theory. I was just listening to an NPR show when I was driving in, the pig hearts being put in people, and it turned out they ended up having viruses in them. They got to get that out. You know, that's that's something that has to be solved.
1: I agree with you that uh, young people don't get out into the world very much anymore. Um, I think it's a problem. They're going to be making policy about stuff in the future. Yeah. Well, that's one of the projects that we have, which is on barcoding, which in the first step of that process, kids have to go out and collect. Things that they would like to make a barcode on. And uh, we've had a bit of success here in New York City. I remember one of the young girls who did a study of ants in a park next to her school in the Bronx. And she told me, she said, when I started this project, I didn't think that there was any uh, diversity of life in New York City. And now I realize that there's quite a lot that I had not noticed all my life. So, yeah, I think we have to. Try our best to find ways to uh, trick kids to get out in the world and look because they don't look that much. That's
0: true. Well, that that's the problem. And I wrote about this in my book on visual thinking, getting kids out um, doing stuff in that one school in, in the city. I took the kids out to learn about parking meters and parking fines and learn some numbers in the process. You know, I uh, took them to an emergency room. You know, there was a lot of stuff that they could. Learn about right there in the city.
1: Yeah, uh, you have to. I think you have to use the laboratory wherever you find it. Well,
0: that's right. You know, and there's a lot of animals. Um, you know, because when I did my outdoor scientist book, they said, "Well, kids live in the cities, no animals." I said, "You got pigeons. You can use that for my animal behavior project. Pick out one pigeon that's really, really uniquely colored to be your focal animal, and watch what it does."
1: Yeah, I think also getting people to help when they observe things to try to pick out the thing that sticks out that one pigeon, that's a little different than the rest, or to make that observation and then to base some hypotheses or ideas about the world based upon that thing that sticks out. And then the other
0: reason we're using a pigeon, that's a different color is if I want to watch what a pigeon does, since I can't have no way of marking city pigeons that uh, then i can pick out one that's a different color i can actually keep track of it and see what it does right i was just at a school yesterday and they just had you know a fairly small goldfish tank and we watched a little bit about what the uh, goldfish did in that tank they'd wiped some of the algae off the off the glass in kind of a zigzag pattern you know they would touch different parts of the plant you know they, even in a pretty small aquarium there was quite a variety of behavior to look at
1: Yes, Uh, there's no shortage of things to observe if you just open your eyes.
0: No, there's uh, there's more animals in the city. I'll never forget the picture of the rat taking a pizza down the subway stairs. No, there's a lot of stuff to observe. And the thing that worries me in the future on solving problems is getting way too theoretical. How do we actually solve a problem out in the field?
1: Yeah, but as you mentioned, it starts with just having people do something practical anything so, practical
0: we've got a lot of energy issues we've got to deal with and we've got to deal with it in a practical manner and, and do stuff that works you know like right now i just read this it horrified me i just read that they're going to shut down three thousand farms in in uh, the netherlands because of nitrite runoff and i'm going can we figure out some way to stop the nitrite runoff other than just shutting down all the farms maybe just a few of them might need to be shut
1: down
2: Dave Miklos is providing young people with the learning skills to observe such problems, oftentimes using genetics as a tool to understand experiments and problem-solve.
1: I'm interested in letting kids to do experiments that give them an idea of how DNA operates uh, at, within their own bodies and within living things, and to use that DNA also to look at uh, the diversity of life. So I've just been trying to make it simpler to do those kinds of experiments um, throughout most of my life. You know, For example, the easiest way that you could get an idea of how genetic man- manipulation works in the modern world is to put a bit of DNA into a bacterium and then see that bacterium change because you can see the change literally overnight because the bacteria grow so quickly. So for example, many kids now do the experiment where they put a bit of a jellyfish gene into a bacterium and make it glow green and it's striking and fun and everybody loves it but you can get the idea from doing that simple experiment that you can take one discrete bit of DNA a gene put it inside an organism and have that organism look and behave rather differently yeah when i when i first started to do those experiments in the 1980s there really wasn't a simple way to get that dna in it took a bit of doing so one of the first things that we popularized was a simple way to get a piece of dna inside of a bacterium so now if i go to certain go into a school or go into a university and i see how they're doing that method of putting dna into bacteria which is called transformation I can pretty much tell that the method that they use came directly from Cold Spring Harbor here. So it makes me sort of feel a little bit like a Pied Piper or a little bit like a Johnny Appleseed, but in the world of DNA rather than apples or rats.
0: Well, that's really great. I was at a science teacher's meeting just really recently down in Texas and they, they had some microscopes there and, and they're showing we'll get scuzzy water off the side of the highway and, you find all the things that are growing in it. And, and this microscope had an iPad attached to it. So you could just see the stuff, just great. You know, that's kind of fun stuff for kids to do, observing the natural world. And then next to that microscope, there was a computerized table that showed stuff that was sort of like a video game. I'm sort of less impressed by that. I would rather just get the kids getting all these different samples and getting a look at them
1: any way that you can get the student involved in a direct way with what they're doing is going to be better. So for example, uh, another of the experiments that we've popularized that I'm sort of happy and proud about is uh, in 1997, we started the, the first experiment where a student could swish their mouth out with a little salt solution, collect the cells that come out of your mouth there, break them open just by boiling a little bit, extract some DNA out of that, amplify one piece of DNA that your, that you inherit from your mother exclusively, and then develop some DNA sequence from that. And that uh, look at a little bit of your mitochondrial DNA, which is inherited from your mother's side of the family. That gives that was the first chance that students and other people could have to look at a bit of their DNA, and to use that to understand how people are related, uh, how we evolved and how we moved about the earth. So we now have about 125,000 students in our database, this little DNA database. But the thing that makes me happy about that is that we we did that experiment before 23andMe or ancestry DNA. So it was really the first personal DNA experiment and it's yeah. still going strong.
0: Now we need to be getting kids um, interested. And you know, some people think, well, we can just replace all real things with virtual reality and stuff like that. I really liked that microscope where they can go out and get the diff- different scuzzy water samples and just
1: see what's in them. Yeah, and now you can take that scuzzy water sample and extract the DNA and run it in uh, in a big next-generation sequence experiment. It's not that hard to do, and you can look at all the different kinds of bacteria that are in say this sample that comes from the pond in your backyard versus uh, the wastewater that comes out of a sewage plant or uh, the crystal clear spring that you have up the side of the mountain.
0: this sample they used was from the side of the freeway overpass.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I have a friend who who did this kind of experiment called meta-barcoding where you just use a barcode to try to see the variety of microbes that are in a sample and they tested wastewater coming out of out of conduits in new york city and they detected variants of the covid virus there that they hadn't found in hospitals so in other words there were lots of different strains of covid that were being shed by people into the water supply but were not presenting themselves into hospitals so
0: well, people were just getting getting it and getting over it then
1: yeah. They yeah. weren't showing up at the hospitals. Right. Now, from those experiments, now there's a whole new field of wastewater. Oh, DNA I'm fully stuff. aware of
0: that. That was started here. Yeah. It was started in the dorms right here at CSU. And how long had they been doing that? They got it going very quickly after COVID got started. Uh,
1: just a few months and they were doing that. Yeah, you can use that same method to look for traces of DNA in water supplies to uh, inventory the fish that are there because the fish DNA remains in the water for a few days. Uh, You could track animals that are very different to track, like different kinds of wild cats and things. You can sometimes track them by looking at the water that they've walked through. Yeah. So this is a, a sort of brave new world of understanding who's been where and why by looking at DNA in the environment, especially in water. Yeah,
0: you know, so if a mountain lion walked in a mud puddle, you'd be able to get some DNA from
1: his paw. You might, yes. Under you the might, right okay. But yeah, you can get DNA from mammals out of water supplies so long as they've mingled <clears throat> in it in some way. And yeah. fish is pretty common to track fish now using this method. And it's, a, it's really great because if you think about how they have to census fish out in the deep ocean, you got to go try to find the fish, you got to net them or catch them. It's pretty haphazard and theoretically get a better idea of the fish that have been there that you might not see, might not be able to net or catch. No, it's just
0: amazing. And I've, you know, I've looked at some of the stuff they can do with new satellite tools or um, looking at things like methane, water table. It's amazing what you can see with
1: satellites. Yeah, uh, I think this is an important thing for young people, ways of maybe seeing them with your eyes and ways of knowing about the world that you can draw from inferences. And to me, that's an important thing to try to Well, I think
0: it is. And no, we've got a lot of practical problems when you get kids out doing things. things. And I think what you're doing with the DNA, that's really cool. And students actually get to do that.
1: Well, especially if they can look at a bit of their own DNA and understand that that DNA came from generations before them. That's right. That by looking at it, uh, by comparing my DNA to your DNA, we can get an idea of how, how far we are separated from a common ancestor. Yeah. And ultimately that everybody shares a common ancestor. Yeah. So to me, um, looking at some of your DNA and analyzing it and seeing that people are all related at some level, either shallow or deep, is the best inoculation against racism that you can think of. So that's been another high point of... Uh, these experiments that we do with uh, human DNA.
0: No, I think that these kind of things are really, really good. I want to encourage it. You know, everything gets too theoretical. When I was out doing the book tour for visual thinking, uh, they let me use a professor's office at a college. You know, it's a political science professor's office. And I couldn't believe how theoretical books were on political science. Didn't discuss issues. It wasn't right or left. It was academic theory about political systems. That was so theoretical, I didn't even understand what it meant. And I'm going, hmm, they're going to be in charge of the energy supply?
1: That's way too theoretical for me. Yeah, and then the question is, if if you learn a lot of theory about a subject, it's fine. But sooner or later, you have to have <sighs> ways to test those theories. Well,
0: absolutely. Available. And I get concerned about some of the modeling that gets done. I think some of that's going out on a limb and, or I might say, getting in the weeds You've always got to validate the model with real data.
1: What's a typical day of yours look like, Tim Well,
0: I've been getting back on the road, doing speaking engagements and traveling. I've been getting out and doing some livestock operations. I just went to a very large pig operation just uh, last week. Saw some very good handling at the meatpacking plant. It's um, good to get out and doing things again. One of the things I learned my work to I did with cattle handling is I wrote a lot of papers about it. That's getting information out there. Some people kind of hold on too much to their data. You know, now there's some stuff where you're inventing stuff and you've got to do that for the patent reasons, but there's a lot of other stuff. Let's just get it out there so people can use it.
1: How has it been in your life when you get an idea for something and then want to try to put it into action?
0: Well, it depends what it is. For one thing, I'm going to get ideas for doing research, ideas for writing papers, and i write those. One of the reasons why I wrote the book on visual thinking is I'm very concerned about skill loss, because you've got some people like me who can do some really good things in science, but we're terrible at algebra and higher math. I think a lot of people think that you have to have algebra to think logically. No, you don't. And there's a place in science, too, for us people that are bad at math, and that's observation. And I used to get in fights with my old professor when I got my PhD, and said the only thing that's real science is the controlled experiment. Well, the Hubble Space Telescope have been just put up, and I said, "What's the Hubble Space Telescope?" It's observation. There's no control. And then he just get real silent and get kind of mad at me. But there's a place for pure observation. You know, now we got the James Webb doing all these beautiful observations. Yeah. you have to observe first, then you can make a hypothesis about something, and then you can test it.
1: And I agree with you because you know I I got involved with science at first by watching birds so that's what got me out into the world good
0: well my sister and I were little kids we'd bust rocks in half to see what they look like inside we thought that was a lot of fun
1: there's a lot of distractions for kids now oh yeah More distractions than there used to be you know and there's kids who are very serious at certain times I wasn't very serious about school till I got to college But the kids who are serious about school in high school, you know, might not really have a time to do their thinking. So especially when we get kids together who like science in the summer and let them work for a week uh, on projects, those kids really appreciate the opportunity to be interested, to be a science geek, which, you know, sometimes they have to hide in a regular classroom. So I think, you know, giving kids the, the chance wherever it is to, sort of come out of their shells and be there, be themselves is really important, not only in science, but in other things as well. And Temple, I would guess that you faced that a lot where you needed that opportunity to get out in the world and do your thinking your own way.
0: I, going back to the science teachers meeting that, and I, went, that I just went to, you know, looking at that microscope and seeing all those things on a computer screen attached to the microscope, That's something real. And then there was a big expensive table where you could do all kinds of game-like things with um, pictures of bacteria and stuff on it. No, I'd rather have the microscope where they can put their sample on it. I did really like seeing that on a large electronic screen, a very, it was an iPad actually, but for some kids it's hard to see through a microscope and you could really see stuff. But you're looking at real stuff in that. Okay, they're working with your DNA, that's real stuff.
1: I was on a conference call the other day with a bunch of people that I work on a National Science Foundation grant with. And uh, the topic came up where one of them had seen this really great virtual reality set up in some university. And so she said, well, you know, maybe we should start a project in virtual reality. And I typed in the chat, I said, I'm really not interested in that. I spent my whole life trying to get kids to do real experiments. So I'm not really interested. Well, there's a lot with of virtual reality all,
0: all this stuff with virtual reality. Like right now we've got a very fancy thing for doing veterinary anatomy in virtual reality and it's very cool. But I don't think it completely replaces the real thing. Well, I'm not saying we don't do anything on a computer, but I think kids need to see work with real.
2: Miklos explains how the DNA Learning Center labs are not the norm and designed to inspire.
1: I'll tell you, I must have taught in 400 different classrooms in high schools and universities all over the country and around the world. And most of them are actually really poorly designed. And some of them are just simple things that don't have necessarily to do with just a kid. They have to do with anyone. For example, you go into labs and they have all these, all these uh, cabinets with doors on them, and nobody ever knows what's there. So in our labs, we don't have doors; we have open fronts, so you can look in there and see the equipment's there and take it out. No, I
0: think that's, I think that's good. <laughs> We've got to get kids out there doing real stuff, mm. and they find out that they really like it. And that's very cool. They can go uh, get the SCSI pond water
1: look yeah. at it on that
0: really cool microscope and then they can do test of DNA for the, all the little monsters they can see swimming around in there So they look like. Because <laughs> what I've learned a lot of career path things, it starts with exposure and then mentoring.
1: 100%.
0: So I really do have to sign off and it's been absolutely great um, talking to everybody.
1: That
2: was Temple Grandin and Dave Nicholas.
0: Thank you so much for listening.
2: How'd You Think of That is a production of the Utah STEM Action Center, music compositions by Rebecca Baker, and the Utah State University Music Department. I'm Sherry Quinn. This podcast is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under grant number 1745674.